Hey, Christ Journey, it's good to be together. So glad that we can gather, but also glad for those of you that are connecting with us across the nation, around the world, and especially today, our hearts with everyone else. We're thinking about friends, family, loved ones who are in Eastern Europe, and um, our prayers and our resources we want to send that way and remember you. In my uh, early time with God this morning, I had this thought cross my mind. If you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I don't think that's just for me, though it is for me. <laughs> I, I want to find him, and my heart gets so distracted so quickly that I need focus. If, if he promises, he will be found. God wants to be found. But you seeking him with all your heart is what opens that up. So we're praying today for people in Eastern Europe that are seeking God because you will find him. And for people that are right here in the 305 today who are wondering, and God wants to be found by you. You know, uh, next Sunday we arrive at the final two chapters in the book of Revelation. They are incomparable. I'm telling you that, you know, we enter the heavenly city, we get to see the new Jerusalem all golden and translucent, shining. Um, we get to taste the incredible river of living water with our own lips. We get to enjoy the trees whose leaves are for the healing of nations. God sits down at the table close enough to reach over and dry the tears from our eyes. I mean, this is incomparable stuff, and he makes all things new. But that's next week. <laughs> you know, um, as much as we may want to rush into glory, John's vision doesn't see it happening without Revelation 19 and 20. And this has been such a heavy series, I'm telling you. And we're just about to hit the lift that is going to bring the lift of God's life into our reality and into our experience. But before we get to do that, we have to, um, we have to travel all the way down the tailspin of fallen humanity and God's plan to bring complete and final justice. Before he brings this glorious reboot to all of his creation in new hope, we come to Revelation 19 and 20 and final justice. So if you find yourself uncomfortable during any part of the message today, I got to tell you, um, I want to hang in there with me because I'm uncomfortable too. Can I say that? And we'll just be uncomfortable together and go through there asking God to open our understanding Open our hearts, open our lives to what you would have us to receive today. And remember that we are here reading and hearing and imagining a very special vision that is written in, in it's an inspired writing, a type of writing called apocalyptic. That means that it is loaded with symbol visceral symbols, some of them, some very bizarre. And we're going to see some extremely disturbing today. And today's message, we come to the end of a very long list of judgments that have been rolling out as God's justice, God's holy justice is being done. 
Maybe you've prayed for justice at some point. Maybe you've longed for some justice. Maybe you've just wondered, where's the justice? Well, God is rolling out justice in the vision of Revelation. And from Revelation's point of view, here's the truth. There is no ultimate solution to the problem of evil and suffering in the world. That's the question of justice apart from God and God's intervening justice. And this is why the period of judgment that we read in the letter of Revelation is more intense and more prolonged than in any other New Testament writing. And it was written when persecution was bloody and uh, fierce, cruel and unprovoked. In the first century, Counselor Carl Jung commended the Apostle John for showing a side of God that is usually repressed, God's justice bringing judgments. Now, you've heard about right brain, left brain function. Um, Revelation is written in images, which means it is full of right brain stuff. Visual images, patterns, emotions, verbal ambiguity, implied meanings that if you want to get it, then you have to lean in there and stay for a while, you know. It's not just a quick read. So we've been taking our time. And the meanings are all around true justice being done by holy God. But what we've also seen is that it is not without and never until God's mercy and God's free gift of redeeming grace and salvation has been offered in Christ for all people everywhere so that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord can be saved with repeated opportunities for people to respond in faith time and again. We have seen that throughout the story and we've seen it throughout human history. The God of Revelation, the reason I'm saying that is because if you have any other thought, let me plant this one in there. The God of Revelation does not delight in roasting people like weenies over the fires of hell. Same God as in Ezekiel 33:11, where he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But he will fully show up to bring righteous justice to pass and to set things to right in a world gone wrong. So may I invite you to stand with me now as I read what John wrote from the visions that he received. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation, glory, power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the living, four living creatures fell down and they, they worshiped God who seated on the throne and they cried, amen, hallelujah. And then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, 
you who fear him, great and small. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder, shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him and riding on a white, they were all riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword which, with which to strike down the nations, and then he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. And then... I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army, but the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on its behalf. And with these signs he had deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. The two of them were then thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed by the sword with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and the birds all gorged themselves on their flesh. And I saw an angel, an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss in his hand, and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss, and then locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. 
And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for 1,000 years. Please be seated. Wow. Oh, my. Um, the vision opens with three happy scenes. The first scene uh, is worship around the throne as justice is served. That's verses one through five. Not revenge, but a divine settling of counts, a settling of accounts that is now celebrated on shouting ground. Did you hear all the references to shout, shout, shout? Okay, first shout, verse one. Praise God, the prostitute is gone. You know, in Wizard of Oz, they sing ding dong, the witch is dead, right? Here, the song is the prostitute's gone. The harlot's gone. Second shout, verse three. Babylon's cruel reign, that godless world system that has deceived and ensnared so many, it's now over, it's done, it's never to return. Verse four, third shout. 24 elders, four living creatures, worship God on the throne and give out this huge amen. That means underline this, repeat that, let's do it again, and then hallelujah. Verse six, fourth shout comes from the throne for a voice from a voice that invites all voices. Let everyone who has breath praise the Lord. It's the hallelujah chorus. Seriously, this is where Handel got the hallelujah chorus. And by the way, this is the only time in the entire New Testament where the word hallelujah is used. What are we supposed to learn from that? A cry of praise as God's justice is done. Thy kingdom has come. And justice is being done as he begins his reign. Well, next happy scene. Next happy scene. The angel announces the wedding around the throne as truth is now served. This is verses 6 through 10. With a punch. Verse 9. These are the true words of God. What is it celebrating? The wedding of the Lamb celebrates the true love of God for the true love of his life. This people, his people. With tenderness and intimacy, God's people are not only being loved, they are feasting on truth. And they're dressed in their own righteousness. Did you notice that? Their own righteous acts? Where does that come from? Well, the grace of God that brings goodness to life is now flowing in them, and they're responding with good works. As bride and guests of the Lamb, and so here's the scene. Jesus is bringing his best, and Jesus' people are all bringing our best, and we're together celebrating that the betrothal is now over. We're going to be face-to-face -face with Christ our Savior, and on our wedding day, it means that now we're going to experience God's commitment and intimacy on a whole new level. He said, you're going to feast on what's true and real without interference from anything foggy or deceptive. Next happy scene, second coming of Jesus Christ. 
Verse 11, our warrior Christ returns, and now just war is being served. Justice is being done, remember. But in contrast to the prostitute, you know, we're seeing some contrast here. There was the Antichrist and the the harlot, and now we're seeing the bride of Christ and the returning son of God. And right there, he's so different because there's no corruption and no contamination in him. Instead, he's called faithful and true. In fact, it's right on him. I mean, it's not just, it's his name. That's how real that is to him. He's faithful and true. He's so faithful. That's what they call him. And his eyes are blazing with fire, and there's too many crowns on his head to count, and he's on this brilliant white stallion that matches his character. Remember, these are symbols. And he's come as a conqueror, but not as you might expect, because this conqueror's robe is already dripping in blood before the battle. What is that? I mean, and his armies on white horses are also dressed in their own linen. They're, they're clothing themselves. Remember, uh, Christ first clothes us in his righteousness, but now he says, I guess his people are responding in faith and now clothing themselves in deeds befitting their king. The sword in his mouth is God's word, and he is so true to the word of God, it's what they call him. It's his name. (laughs) And he's already acting in full authority and power as king of kings and lord of lords to the point that the angel, before the battle, announces the invitation to the birds to come and feed on the bodies of the opponents now fallen. But look, I mean, verse 19, some of you are paying close attention to these scriptures, but in 19, all of these are assembled to fight against God. But in verse 20, no battle is engaged. How then does the Lord have a bloody robe? Well, the text tells us from earlier in the vision, what did we see? The battle's already been fought and won on a cross so that the one that is on the throne is a bloody lamb, so that the lamb of God has unleashed his mercy before his, he has taken the justice upon himself before he rolls it out against any of the sin of his opponent. Here's the lion lamb, the lion lamb, slain astride the white horse of triumph, reigning through his word, Just as in Genesis chapter 1, God spoke and there was light. Now in Revelation chapter 19, the living word speaks and darkness is done. The beast of abusive secular power control. (laughs) The false prophet of deceiving religion consigned with a word to the lake of fire. The rest slain by the word of God. And Jesus, we notice this, he's been called faithful and true. He's been called the word of God. He's been called king of kings and lord of lords. But there was another name, verse 12 says, that he has a name that is written on him that no one knows but he himself. What is that all about? What does that mean? Well, I think, number one, it means that there's no word that you can call him that will completely capture and communicate the awesome glory of an incarnate God in Jesus Christ. Nobody knows like he knows what that means. And it's saying that. But then it's also saying he's making himself known 
as he most truly knows himself to be. Let that one settle on you. Man, I'm sitting in that one right now. He is making him. Nobody knows what it means to be almighty God incarnate in the body of Jesus, the resurrected lamb who is the lion. Nobody knows what that means but him. And he's fully showing up for who he truly is as he knows himself to be. God, would you please open our eyes to understand a little bit more of who you are? There's only one Jesus. There's no one else like him in all of the cosmos. Would you stand as we honor him and hear the reading of the remainder of this vision? At home, too. <laughs> Let's stand and open our ears, give our attention, and ask God, help me hear what you have for me. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. He'll go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle in number. They are like the sand on the seashore. And they marched across the breadth of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur with the beast and where the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Please be seated. Once again, man, my palms are sweaty. And it's not the lights. So much mystery. So much controversy. In these few words. Millennium. Devil. Loosed. Great white throne judgment of everyone who was ever alive and everyone who is now dead before God and they're being judged according to what they have done? Lake of fire? No small controversy there. Now remember, this is apocalyptic. We're, we're engaged. We're trying to say, what? Scholars differ in their understanding of a thousand-year reign of Christ and the people in the first resurrection. They wonder this. Are the thousand years literal calendar time? And some say yes, during which the martyrs that came out of the tribulation 
uh, now are ruling with Christ on the earth and also host to a great turning of the Jewish people to Christ. Some say, well, maybe it's not a thousand literal calendar years, but a fullness of time, because you know that's what 1,000 means, 10 times 10 times 10. It's the fullness, this threefold fullness that maybe it's saying symbolically a period of time and, uh, and so they write a lot of books about disagreeing over those things. Numbers are symbolic in apocalyptic view, but this viewpoint also holds that a great number of Jewish people will turn to Christ as Messiah, fulfilling the ancient prophecy of messianic age on earth. Uh, but why, okay, here, maybe you were wondering this. Why is the devil... <laughs> why was he taken, why was he uh, held captive and now released again? What? I mean, and how is it that people are still being deceived and taken captive by his deceptions? I mean, I was wondering that. It's been a thousand years since the great harlot has been taken out. It's been a thousand years since the, God, the, uh, the godless world system that is in rebellion against God and has deceived so many people. A thousand years that's been offline. That's what the vision just told us. A thousand years since the beast, the secular power force that enforces that influence and the seducing religious deception, they've, been, they've all been taken out. And yet, even in their absence for a thousand years, people are still choosing against God? Okay, wait. If the environment and the cultural power structure against God is no longer in play, then where's the rebellion coming from? Maybe that's what we're supposed to ask. Maybe that's what we're supposed to see, that it's coming from within human beings. It's not any particular race, it's the human race. And we don't like to admit this, but God in this vision seems to be removing all possible doubt as to where the mystery of iniquity is at work in our world. And the answer is human beings. The, the source of rebellion against God isn't just in our environment out there. It's not even with the devil down there. He's been in prison for a thousand years. Did you hear that? However long that is, he's been, he's been out of circulation. Okay, then why is it that even though he's been out of circulation for a thousand years, the human race is so vulnerable to being deceived and rebelling against God again in the absence of this influence because deep within people, the mystery lies, the mystery of sin. That's why Satan is able to gather the armies like numbers on the sand of the seashore and surround the city that God loves. And yet, before the rebels can lift a hand again, did you notice this? Before there was any other, fire comes from God, devours them. The devil is just taken. It's like no big thing to him. He says, takes him, puts him in the lake of fire. It's like a scene out of Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. You know, where uh, the great opposition is all gathered and then boom! 
boom, the earth swallows them. It's all done. It falls over. This is no question here that God is omnipotent. Newport says, the devil having accomplished his work of manifesting the hidden rebelliousness of humanity is no longer tolerated to work further mischief. In other words, God has just used the devil's twistedness to try to bring truth to light for anybody who's paying attention. Where does evil come from? I see it in the mirror. (laughs) I got more problems with myself than any other human being that I've ever known. It's me, Lord, standing in the need of grace, standing in the need of prayer, standing in the need of forgiveness. I got the problem. I am the problem. And so now that's done, but guess what? The next vision, he says, the great white throne. He sees the great white throne. Judgment is next. All the dead are standing before the throne, and the books are open. It's the final cleansing. It's the final separation of peoples. And each person was judged according to what he had done, verse 12. Now, that bothers some of us, but listen. We're not saved by our works. That's not what this is talking about. It is faith alone that saves, faith in Christ that saves. But saving faith produces good works. That seed bears fruit, and that fruit is seen in behavior, and all that's happening here is a confirmation of the evidence that the seed that is alive in you by faith has now borne fruit in you. And so the evidence is there. The root is known by its fruit. And since Hades and death and the sea that have been holding tanks for all the dead have now coughed them up. Now the Lord who is overseeing all of this can say, well, we don't need you anymore, and he puts them in the trash. And then verse 15, those whose names are not found in the Lamb's book of life are cast in the lake of fire. You know, we've been on a long a long journey through 20 chapters in the final justice of God being done. And it's been heavy. And today, you know what? It's super heavy. If we're paying attention at all, you got to feel some of this. By the way, if this is your first time with us, uh, I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to... To have this be your first day, your first message, your first opportunity. And so what I'm praying, because God would not have had you come if he didn't already know that, right? And so maybe this is a day to say, Lord, would you open my eyes wider to what you're up to? What am I supposed to see? What am I supposed to feel? What am I supposed to respond to in light of this? We've been on a long journey through 20 chapters with trumpets and seals and Uh, bowls and a long, slow journey over time. And, And now here at the very end of that very long list is something called the Lake of Fire. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he acknowledges that hell is a detestable doctrine that he would be willing to remove from Christianity if it were in his power. Maybe you felt the same way. But then he says this, the question is not whether it is detestable, but whether it is true. I read a story about sailors on an American frigate 
military man of warship from an earlier century, and they had just received a new chaplain, and so they asked him, do you believe in hell? He said, I do not. They said, well, then would you please resign? Said, because if there is no hell, we don't need you. And if there is, we don't want to be led astray. Why did God come in Jesus Christ? This begs the question. And here are my answers. Because God is real. Because God is love. Love is real. And because hell is real. And Jesus taught that it is a real destination where real people go, perhaps not intending to, but it really is real. And that God has done everything he possibly can. That's what the gospel is about. That's what the New Testament's about. To do justice. We want justice, right? Yeah, God is absolutely just. Absolutely just. God has done everything he can and one day will be just. Justice all the way. And show mercy before he does all the justice. Where do we get this? John 3, 17, 16, 17, verse 17. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And whoever believes, nobody is exempt, nobody's exception. Everybody can believe and then experience salvation, not condemned. Why? Because the just punishment has already been absorbed in the body of the incarnate God on the cross of Jesus Christ. The just punishment of human rebellion and sin against God, the high treason that that means as God knows so much better than we do what that means, and then the treachery that is unleashed between nations, between neighbors, and in our own homes, the hurt and harm that we create for one another because of our self-absorbed sinfulness, all of that taken upon himself. And then Jesus said, he that comes to me, I will not cast away. God will not reject anyone who comes to him for mercy, but neither will he force himself on anyone who doesn't, who doesn't want him in their life. He will not force them to choose life with him when they want it without him. This is verse 19, John chapter three. This is the verdict that light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. This is a problem. So Paul, being one of those, he writes an entire treatise on this in the book of Romans. And he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't wait for us to clean our own act up, to get things right so that we can earn our salvation. Christ dies for us. That's what the lamb on the bloody lamb of God on the throne means in the book of Revelation. And then John said, and so as many as received him, it's like a gift, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Have you received the gift of God's salvation? And so Paul echoes again from the prophets of old, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called on the name of the Lord? That's the question, because the Lamb's book of life has in it every name of every person who has trusted the Lamb of God in Jesus Christ to take away the sins of their world. The price of our sin debt, of your sin debt, of mine, has been paid in full. And when you receive Jesus Christ, he forgives your sins just like that and gives you the gift of salvation. 
So that Paul said, well, what do I have to do? He said, well, if you confess with your mouth, just say it out loud, that Jesus is Lord, and then believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. But if not, you will die in your sin. The free pardon is available, but you got to receive the gift in order to experience the pardon. You ever heard the you ever heard of the case uh, United States versus George Wilson? This is from the archives of the United States Supreme Court. Actual case. George Wilson and his partner were found guilty of obstructing delivery of the mail, robbery of the mail, and then endangering the life of mail carriers. And the court sentenced them, both of them, to death. His partner was hanged July of the year of his sentencing. But thanks to friends who were lobbying on Wilson's behalf, then President Andrew Jackson issues a pardon to Wilson. But for some reason, he refuses the presidential pardon. And at that point, the case went to the United States Supreme Court. Does a citizen have the right to reject a pardon? And the court ruled that it had no power to impose a pardon on a citizen. Quote, here's their decision. A pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential and delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, close quote. And in the end, Wilson was hanged. Not because he hadn't received a pardon, but because he never accepted the pardon. And here's how that applies to what we're talking about. It's not enough that God incarnate fleshed himself out in Jesus Christ and then went to the cross and took cosmically in that mystery of atonement every sin that we have committed against him and then said, I've got you covered It's not enough that God has done that. He says, do you want the gift? And you've got to receive the pardon by faith in order to experience it. And you know, it's a hard thing to say. It's a hard thing to hear. But the hardest thing of all, we'll be hearing it someday if Jesus says to you, depart from me, I never knew you. Don't be that guy. Receive the pardon. Have you? That's why throughout Scripture you'll hear this call come from God. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Open your heart. Somebody's still wondering, but why Jesus? Why Jesus? Why Jesus? Well, Revelation 19 verse 11 says this. The testimony of Jesus, that means the living story of Jesus we have in the gospel, is the spirit of of prophecy. What does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ contains within himself all the entire fullness of God, the revelation of who God is. In other words, if you receive him by faith, you enter into a relationship with Christ, you'll not only find forgiveness for your sins, you're going to find where you came from, where you're going. You're going to meet your God and enter into your best life because he loves you and has done everything he possibly can to say, would you let me? And then let's do life together. And let's never let it end. What do you think? Eternal life. Would you pray with me? Gracious almighty God, I just want to thank you for the moment that you called my name and you helped me start understanding things that I hadn't 
ever comprehended. And I'm praying for somebody like me today who maybe for the very first time is starting to turn their thoughts Godward. Would you help them right now to know that you've been thinking about them for a long time? And that on the cross you were thinking about them? And that with every sin that has been committed against them and every sin that they have ever committed, you were thinking about them so that you took all of that upon yourself so that forgiveness could flow with healing and life into their life. That you went to the cross to bear our sins and then when they buried you, you rose from the dead to show your love and life is stronger than all of the sin and death in this world. Friend, if you've never trusted Christ in the forgiveness of sins, you can do it right now. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I believe you love me. Forgive my sins. Come into my life. I am turning to you and inviting you to help me learn how to follow by faith. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Our heads are still bowed, but if you, would, if you just prayed that prayer with me and would let me ask God's blessing upon your next steps of faith, would you simply raise your hand and hold it up for a moment. Give me a chance to, to find you. If you're joining us online, enter the chat. Let us pray for you and with you right now. Amen. Right here to the front on my right, in the middle on my right. God bless you right here in the front center and then right in the middle as well. God bless you toward the back, right in the back row. God bless you on, in the center right here on the aisle to my left. Friends, church, are you praying for these people? In the back row on the left, another hand just went up. Thank you, sister. Lord Jesus, for every person who by uplifted hand is saying, my heart is open and I am asking God to come into my life with the forgiveness of sins and the fullness of life. I receive the gift of eternal life. Lord Jesus, may each one of these individuals sense from you the peace that transcends human understanding as you promised and help us now as we enter the Christ journey with them together. In your name we pray.